Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Even the greenest trainees rotating through the ED can name a few deadly causes of chest pain. But for all the cognitive space they occupy, we see them and work them up relatively infrequently. Borhaves? Not your standard once-a-week presentation. STEMI? In some tertiary centers, they bypass EDs altogether. Tension pneumo? Not exactly a row of folks sitting patiently in the waiting room each shift. But what about the chest pain and shortness of breath chameleon pulmonary embolism. More common, sometimes just as deadly, and exceptionally shifty. If I were to design a perfect emergency medicine brain buster, it would have all the qualities of pulmonary embolism. It would affect the young and the old. It would be precipitated by seemingly anything, medications, smoking, and even video gaming. It would be dynamic, anything from asymptomatic to killing in minutes. It would have a huge variability in presenting signs and symptoms depending on a whole host of patient factors. It would have multiple decision rules, imaging modalities, and treatment options. It's as if PE was invented just to challenge the minds of ED docs. So here's the big question. Which patients require a workup for PE? And if they do require a workup, what's the best way to work them up? What we really want are decision aids that maximize diagnostic accuracy while minimizing overtesting and patient harm resulting from overtesting, overdiagnosis, and anticoagulation complications, not to mention the healthcare dollars. In this podcast, we're going to ask the questions that plague us on almost every shift. Which patients require any workup at all for PE? What's the utility of PERC and Wells scores? Should the new year's decision tool supplant Wells? When should we order a D-dimer? What's the diagnostic role for chest X-ray, ECG, point-of-care ultrasound, CTA, and VQ? How should we work up pregnant patients for PE? And how can we use shared decision-making strategies for PE to help us do what's best for our patients? And to help us answer these seemingly simple questions, it's my pleasure to welcome two brilliant guest experts on EM cases. They're new to EM cases, Dr. Kirsten DeWitt, EM and thrombosis physician at Hamilton Health Sciences, prolific thrombosis researcher who's trained in both the UK and Canada, research director for McMaster University Division of Emergency Medicine, assistant professor at McMaster, the current PSI Knowledge Translation Fellow to improve the diagnosis of PE in the ED, and the lead for a national research program to develop optimal method and implementation tools for PE diagnosis in Canadian EDs. Welcome, Dr. DeWitt. Whew, that was a long one. Thank you, Anton. Thank you for asking me here. And just as long a description, Dr. Eddie Lang, the academic and clinical emergency department head at Foothills in Calgary, full professor at University of Calgary and senior researcher with Alberta Health Sciences, award-winning educator, thrombosis researcher, author of Venous Thromboembolism Guidelines, senior associated editor for CGEM, and Associate Editor for the International Journal of EM. Welcome, Dr. Lang. Thanks, Anton. Great to be here. All right. Before we jump in, uh, since you guys are thrombosis researchers, any financial conflicts of interest to declare? 
My only conflict of interest is that I have an unrestricted grant from Bayer for a research project. And none related to diagnosis on my part. All right. So yeah, we're not going to be talking about uh, treatment of pulmonary embolism, except when it comes to subsegmental pulmonary embolism. We're just going to be talking about diagnosis. So let's jump into the first case. A 68-year-old otherwise healthy woman who works at a downtown law firm presents to her ED with a first-ever crescendo onset of persistent, non-radiating, right-sided, 6 out of 10 chest pain that started while she was driving to work a few hours ago. On deep inspiration, the pain increases to 8 out of 10, and she admits to feeling a little bit short of breath, maybe. There are no other exacerbating or alleviating factors. She has no cough, no fever, no presyncope, no nausea, no sweats, no leg swelling or pain, and no recent immobilization. She's been on oral contraceptives for 20 years and smokes the occasional cigarette at social gatherings. Otherwise, no cardiovascular or thromboembolic risk factors. On exam, she appears well in no respiratory distress while texting her colleagues. However, she does appear a bit apprehensive. Her vitals are all normal, chest is clear, there's no audible cardiac rub or murmur, no pulse deficit, no calf swelling or tenderness. ECG shows normal sinus rhythm with an incomplete right bundle branch block and no ST abnormalities. There's no previous ECG to compare, and the nurse has already drawn up routine blood work and a troponin, which are all normal. So for the audience, just take a moment and think about how you would work up this patient and then we'll cover all the details of working up PEs with Dr. Lang and Dr. DeWitt. And then we'll come back to the case and ask them how they would work up the patient. So before we get into which patients might require a workup for PE, I think it's important just to get a sense of the prognosis of the illness. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, PE can certainly kill, but on the other hand, subsegmental PEs can be clinically insignificant. Dr. DeWitt, what is the prognosis for untreated versus treated PE. Do we know that? The prognosis for untreated pulmonary embolism is unclear. The original data published in the 1980s is very outdated and the estimate of a 30% mortality rate I think is grossly overstated. The very fact that we misdiagnose pulmonary embolism frequently and that patients don't die very often of it I think points to the fact that the mortality rate would be much lower. It would be impossible to know for sure, but maybe in the, the region between 5 and 10% for untreated pulmonary embolism. I certainly see a lot of patients in my clinic who have had symptoms for months before they're diagnosed. And by the time they diagnose pulmonary embolism, it's clear on the CT scan that it's a chronic clot. So pulmonary embolism definitely is survivable without treatment, but clearly your prognosis would be better with treatment. I have coroner friends who tell me that they do see patients who've died of pulmonary embolism fairly frequently. Uh, so clearly, I only see the patients who survive. But I think, on the whole, the prognosis of untreated pulmonary embolism has been overstated. The mortality rate amongst patients who have been diagnosed with pulmonary embolism is very low when you look at patients who die of the condition. So many of the patients that I treat have cancer, for example, and it's not unusual for them to die within a week or two of being diagnosed, but that was clear that they were going to die at the time of the diagnosis because of their other conditions. 
I've only had two patients in the last eight years that I've been working in thrombosis who died after starting on anticoagulation, who died clearly of pulmonary embolism. Well, so the rate of mortality with treatment is less than 1%, would you say? Oh, way less than 1%, probably even less than 0.1%. Okay. What about those patients who the anticoagulation is delayed for whatever reason? Let's say a patient comes in with an obvious PE and they're not anticoagulated up front. There's a delay to get the CT scan and confirmation Are there any numbers with regards to patients who die not anticoagulated while waiting? Um, I think that particular question is something of an evidence-free zone. But uh, what it raises is the possibility of a spectrum of PE patients. Uh, You know, similar to, you know, we were were told many years ago that you have to think of PE a little bit like subarachnoid hemorrhage. That if you miss that initial clot... Uh, they're going to come back with the massive PE and they'll be on death's doorstep, if not already in PEA. That's actually probably not the case. And as Kristen alluded to, more likely we're going to see more cases with chronic pulmonary hypertension from recurrent or long-standing clot. So while I think it's probably reasonable and good practice to anticoagulate someone with high pretest probability in whom you are investigating or sending them off for investigations, and most of the guidelines will support uh, empiric anticoagulation for patients with high pretest probability for any variant of VTE, I don't think we have convincing evidence that it's necessary or that we're going to change outcomes by doing it, but it's probably good practice. If the mortality rate is well below 1%, what about the numbers in terms of the hemorrhage rate with anticoagulation? Any numbers you can throw out there? Well, funnily enough, the highest risk time to bleed while you're on anticoagulation is within the first week of starting anticoagulation. So it's sort of like a challenge test. Those who have a higher risk of bleeding, you start them on an anticoagulant, they'll bleed. So I do always think about that if I'm starting an anticoagulant for a patient who is not yet diagnosed, I always think about their bleed risk first. And if their bleeding risk is really high, then I would maybe think twice about it. So we're looking at maybe in the first three months of anticoagulation for pulmonary embolism, probably something in the region of three to five percent of patients would bleed. Wow. And that three to five percent, is that Major hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, major GI bleeds? Those are figures for major bleed. So um, we're talking about major bleeds. So either bleeding that requires two units of blood transfusions or else requires a surgery or the patient dies from the bleed or else it's in a critical site such as the brain. Wow. Okay. So those are actually kind of scary numbers. So as soon as we diagnose a PE, even sometimes before we have confirmatory tests, it's recommended to start anticoagulation. I just think we need to keep these numbers in mind. My understanding from the emperor registry was that the all-cause 30-day mortality was about 5%, that the PE mortality was about 1%, and that the mortality from hemorrhage was about 0.2%. So We're making a little bit of headway, but not as much as I thought before I saw this registry. You know, I think we have to also keep in mind the typical patient we're working up for PE is going to be at fairly low risk of bleeding. Like, look at the patient in your case scenario. I mean, her risk, her has blood score is going to be zero. And, you know, unless you're talking about someone with a history of bleeding, liver disease, very low body mass index, 
you know, getting into trouble from uh, empiric anticoagulation is probably going to be very low. Yeah, I would completely agree with Eddie on that. So the vast majority of patients that we test for pulmonary embolism are young and healthy. So young people with no other comorbidity have the lowest bleed risk of all. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that we spend a lot of time working up young patients who are way less likely to have a PE. And then the ones that we miss are usually the older patients who are much more likely to have a PE. I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> Well, I think it speaks to the fundamental issue that missed PE is rarely a failure of diagnostic strategies. It's it's rarely the patient whose D-dimer was, you know, nearly normal and we sent them home and they had a PE a few days later. PE diagnosis failure is failure to consider almost always. So it's either uh, the COPD patient where we didn't look carefully and missed a swollen leg, or it'll be the lady who comes in, my case, for example, who came in with exertional palpitations only. All she had was uh, increased heart rate going up a staircase. Didn't quite know what to make of it. And sure enough, she came back with a PE three days later. I think it's easier for us to make diagnoses on patients who have comorbidity so it's easy for us to think, oh, it's pneumonia because it's consolidation on the x-ray, this is heart failure, this is something else, in patients who clearly need to come to hospital anyway. And our brains aren't really wired in such a way that we keep drilling down to find the other diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, in, in x-ray interpretation for, for fractures, you know, one of the first rules we learn is always look for the second fracture. But for some reason with shortness of breath or chest pain. Once we have the diagnosis, we suffer from that cognitive bias of premature closure. Yeah. And, and I think there's some comfort in knowing the patient's being admitted. You feel that your job's done, you've diagnosed a condition that requires admission and you walk away feeling okay. Whereas if it's someone who's young, who's not going to be admitted, if you don't make any diagnosis, you want to chase any possible diagnosis to ensure you don't send them home with a serious condition. So, of course, the medical legal climate in Canada is nothing really to be concerned about. If you look at the U.S., though, and you speak to uh, folks like Jeff Klein, who are medical legal experts, they'll kind of confirm what Kirsten and I are saying, that the cases that, this is spectrum bias, but the cases that go medical legal are not ones where the CT failed to diagnose the PE or again, there was a failure of a VQ scan. It uh, was That's because the radiologists are... Overcalling calling, them, probably. Yeah, overcalling them, calling every tiny little filling defect, peripheral filling defect, a possible subsegmental PE. Right. Now, it's a classic, as you mentioned, it's a cognitive bias type of a problem where we fail to include it on the differential. Once we go down the path, we're unlikely to go wrong. Not to say that we're probably not going down the path too often and unnecessarily so, but when we're talking about missed PE, it's failure to consider. Fantastic. So let's get on to which patients require a workup for PE. Now, this might sound like a simple question, but one of the problems with the Wells criteria, for example, when it initially came out was that it actually inadvertently increased CT utilization, even though it was intended to decrease CT utilization. It begs the question, who do we consider PE in, in the first place? So do we only consider PE in patients with pleuritic chest pain or shortness of breath, or is there some kind of criteria for helping you decide 
whether or not to even think about working up the patient in the first place. You know, I'm going to challenge you on one of the things you just said. You're right. CT utilization has gone up dramatically over the last few years, and that does correspond chronologically with the introduction of the Wells score. But I think it could also be easy accessibility. Um, emergency departments are under a lot of pressure. CTs are more are easier to get. And, you know, honestly, some of our training programs demand that we think about the worst case scenario with almost every patient and hence put people down a pathway that's not necessary. So I think there's uh, basically three groups. Someone coming in with pleuritic chest pain, a risk factor, and hemoptysis, that's a no-brainer. Someone who's coming in with recurrent panic attacks, a history of panic attacks, and is presenting pretty much the same way, they shouldn't be even considered for pulmonary embolism most of the time. So it's that middle gray group where, you know, they're they're not having classic PE symptoms, but it could be on the differential. They might have some other uh, risk factor. And that's a perfect population where you might want to use uh, D-dimer as a screening tool for going forward. All right. Yeah. You had described the case that you had missed that actually didn't have shortness of breath at rest and didn't have pleuritic chest pain at all. You know, one of the things I've been teaching the residents probably erroneously is don't even bother working up PE if they don't have any chest pain or any shortness of breath. So the first research study that I did, which is about 14 years ago now, we recruited consecutive patients. Right, you must have done that when you were, what, 15 years old? That, correct, correct. <laughs> we recruited consecutive patients coming to the emergency department with pleuritic chest pain. And it was a diagnostic study to look at rule out tests for pulmonary embolism. We showed that only 5% of patients with pleuritic chest pain in the emergency department have pulmonary embolism. So although... Yes, some patients who have pulmonary embolism have pleuritic chest pain. Not, not many at all do. And in fact, um, the vast majority of patients who present with pulmonary embolism, they may have chest pain, they may not. But the one thing that they all have is breathlessness that is unexplained. So that, that is my go-to. And when I say breathlessness that's unexplained, I don't mean they're sat at rest and they're breathless. So, for example, it could be a lady who's in her 50s who I see in the minor injuries area. She's put there because her vital signs are, are normal. And she can talk to me and she can give me a clear history without any breathlessness. But the thing that triggers me to test her pulmonary embolism in that case is, uh, number one, she mentions something about, just in passing, she mentions something about her breathing. So I drill down on that and I say, well, how is your breathing? And give me an example of when you feel breathless. And she says, when I put the garbage out, I feel breathless. And so then I say, do you have stairs at home? And she says, yeah. And I say, how do you feel walking up the stairs? And she says, I'm really struggling for breath. That's it right there. Pulmonary embolism is already right at the forefront of my brain. The second thing that she says is I just feel terrible. I'm exhausted. I just feel awful. So those are the two most common symptoms. Number one, breathlessness. Number two, fatigue. Chest pain doesn't even get a look in on that list. So my starting point for pulmonary embolism is breathlessness and fatigue. But you don't know that the patient's breathless unless you ask the right questions. So I, I've had plenty of 
people I've asked about breathlessness and they say, oh yeah, I'm breathless. And then you say, what do you mean by that? Give me an example. And they say, well, when I yawn, I feel breathless. So clearly that's not breathlessness. I'm looking for exertional dyspnea. Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, and it highlights what you brought up, Anton, at the beginning of the podcast, that this is a tricky area. And um, it's it's not only complicated by which patients should we be working up and which uh, elements of the history and physical, or history especially, should highlight uh, the need for PE workup. But I think there's also this problem of patients who were automatically putting on an ACS pathway, it's a bit, a bit of a different topic, that who are probably a PE patients, they're coming in with, especially now that we're using high sensitivity troponin, uh, it's not uncommon at all for a PE to cause a small bump in the high sensitivity troponin due to right heart strain. And we're not thinking outside the box, we're putting them down on ACS pathways and treating them that way. But the corollary is that Sometimes, it depends on who's on, some of the cardiology consultants and some of the admitting respiratory services are pushing emergency physicians to make sure there's not a PE there before they agree to accept the patient for a COPD exacerbation or an ACS admission. Yeah, we'll get into the the studies uh, on COPD exacerbations and, and syncope are the two that you know showed a 16-17% rate of PEs and Perhaps we'll discuss how we should maybe ignore those studies, <laughs> but we'll get there. We've talked a little bit about what symptoms to ask for and what would really you know, spark your spidey senses that this could be a PE, which patients actually require a workup in the first place. What if the patient's vital signs that were abnormal at triage, let's say heart rate of 115, then normalized by the time you see them? You know, I imagine there's a lot of patients who come into the emergency department who are quite anxious at triage. There's a million people running around. There's a young drunk guy screaming, you know, 10 feet away from them. Uh, let's say, you know, they've just run from the parking lot or something and they're all anxious. So it would be reasonable to think that their heart rate might be up at triage. And then once they've sat for a while, it would come down. Does this normalization of vital signs make the diagnosis of PE less likely? So that's a complex question. And uh, I've had this discussion with Jeff Klein, um, who has published evidence to suggest that it, it doesn't. I think it depends why you're looking for tachycardia. So first of all, I would never look for tachycardia in order to decide whether to test for pulmonary embolism. So I never think this young person has no explanation for their chest pain. Now I'm going to look to see if they're tachycardic or they're tachycardic. I'm going to test for PE. I think you have to decide whether you're testing for PE or not based on the overall picture. And for me, that would be breathlessness and fatigue. If I was applying the Wells score... Actually, my current practice is to use the, the heart rate of the patient at the time in front of me. But I know that Jeff Klein uses the heart rate at triage and for the PERC rule too. I think either of those options is fine. Just to clarify there, you're not going to use tachycardia as a reason to work up PE. But if you're thinking about PE already, then you will use tachycardia as part of your decision tools, wells and 
Perk. Well, clearly, I, I would use the Wells score and, and heart rate is part of the Wells score. But I'm absolutely with you that uh, if you look at people under the age of 40 at triage, I would think about 50% of them are tachycardic because they're all so anxious. You know, I, I tend to agree with, or endorse uh, Jeff Klein's work that uh, we certainly see patients who have clear-cut PE with normalized vital signs. And I think that makes sense to a large degree because... You know, even a segmental clot, we have enough pulmonary cardiovascular reserve to not become tachycardic, especially if we're sitting still in, a, in an, an emergency stretcher. The cautionary note is, and I guess this is where that type line of research comes from, is that we're often lulled into reassurance by seeing a normal set of vital signs and are more likely to send a missed PE home if we are saying, well, it can't be PE because the vital signs are normal. But I guess that, that prompted that line of research in the first place. So just to summarize there... Tachycardia on its own shouldn't be the reason you work up PE, but if you're already thinking about PE, there is some evidence to suggest that any tachycardia, let's say at triage that then normalizes, can still be a PE, so you shouldn't ignore that tachycardia. It just shouldn't be the thing that triggers you to work up the patient in the first place. Great synopsis. Let's talk about risk factors. Now, it seems to me that almost anything can be a risk factor for PE and that patients don't need to have any risk factors to have a PE. So I want to talk a little bit about how we should use risk factors and what we should be asking for. You know, smoking, obesity, connective tissue disorders, video gaming, syncope, COPD, age, the list goes on and on and on and on. And it seems like every few months there's some other thing that they say is a risk factor for PE. Which risk factors are the important ones in the ED patient? And in particular, what should we make of the studies that show a high rate of PEs among patients who presented with syncope? You know, the, the PESIT trial showed a prevalence of 17% of these patients will have PEs on admission. And there was another study among patients who presented with COPD exacerbations who showed a almost similar 16% prevalence of PE when they were admitted. So what do we make of risk factors in general? And in particular, do we have to work up every patient with syncope and COPD in our, in our ED for PE? So I don't rely on the presence of risk factors to test for pulmonary embolism because 50% of venous thromboembolic events are unprovoked and they occur in patients for the first time. So um, the classical example is somebody in their 20s Clearly, they have no risks for venous thromboembolism, but they are inherently at risk. And at some stage, that has to declare itself. So if somebody has symptoms in keeping with pulmonary embolism, I don't need a risk factor to test because I expect a large number of clots to be diagnosed in patients with no risk factors. However, if someone does have um, symptoms of PE and they have an additional risk factor, which could include long distance travel, being bedridden in the recent past, having a very strong family history of venous thromboembolism. So uh, if they tell me that three of their four siblings are on anticoagulation for pulmonary embolism or deep vein thrombosis and their parent is also on anticoagulation, then I would listen to that. Clearly, being treated for active cancer would make you think about it more. So that the, there's a variety of different risk factors that I would always inquire about. When it comes to um, syncope and pulmonary embolism, you know, I think this is a kind of a, 
if it bleeds, it leads kind of a situation. So these were shocking data points uh, that were quite surprising. And I believe that they got published in high-profile journals because they had that shock value to them. If you take a deeper dive into these studies, you find lots of problems. So on the syncope front, for example, these were not all comers with syncope. These were syncope patients admitted to the hospital. So already you're talking about a spectrum of people with more comorbidities, more severe disease. On the COPD front, what you find is that there's a high number of sub-segmental PEs. You're going to talk about that shortly, but those are really of questionable significance. And follow-up studies looking at syncope patients from the Canadian group in Ottawa has also confirmed that uh, the frequency of PE is much, much less than the 15 16% reported in the Pezitz trial, for example. Still, COPD is a bit of a quandary, I think, for me, because these are sick people. They don't have a lot of pulmonary reserve. We can't really afford, perhaps, to miss PE in those patients. So for what it's worth, uh, my approach is to try to really see if the pulmonary findings are the clear explanation for the person's dyspnea, if their subjective sensation of dyspnea is similar to previous COPD exacerbations, I have a careful look at the legs. And if something just doesn't match up, then I'll go ahead with a D-dimer. And Dr. DeWitt, your take on these two trials, the one that showed a very high rate of PE in patients who presented with syncope and COPD, what's your take on them and then uh, and the subsequent trials? So clearly the PESIT trial is not generalizable. And we've shown very, very clearly that in Canada, our rate of pulmonary embolism amongst patients who are labelled as syncope when they're admitted is much lower, around 1%. So personally, I don't even think about pulmonary embolism with syncope unless it was somebody who, when I drill down with them, I ask them about breathlessness in the recent past. I checked, have they previously had venous thromboembolism? Are there any clues that they might be at risk of venous thromboembolism? And that's probably the only patient that I would look at the ECG and I'd look for signs of right bundle branch block or something. Because if you have syncope from pulmonary embolism, you have large burden, most likely proximal PE. So, yeah, I don't think that's generalizable at all. For COPD, actually, I seldom test for PE. Perhaps I undertest. But I, yeah, very, very seldom do I even think about pulmonary embolism and an exacerbation of COPD, especially when the patient comes in wheezy. We, we are referred a number of COPD patients who have been diagnosed with small pulmonary embolism when I'm working in thrombosis. And it's exactly as you say, Eddie, you get nervous because the patient really has no reserve to go on and sustain a second event. So we would always treat a minimum of three months. And if we thought it was provoked, we'd stop then. And if it was unprovoked, then we would seriously consider continuing on lifelong anticoagulation. But as you know, COPD patients are high risk for bleeding because they tend to be frail. Uh, They have comorbidity. They might have chronic renal impairment. So they're not great candidates and it's not without risk to anticoagulate. Well, that's a tricky population, but what I think it really comes down to is a really good history, you know? It's that really good history taking, like you were saying, Dr. Lang, that if a patient presents with a COPD exacerbation, if there's just something that's not fitting, that's when you might want to think about a pulmonary embolism. But certainly we shouldn't be trigger happy with thinking, oh, we have a COPD exacerbation, all these patients need to have a PE ruled out in them before they're admitted to hospital. 
Yeah, you're touching on a, on a really good general area in PE diagnosis, and that's the value of gestalt. And, um, you know, that's been the critique of the Wells rule for, for years that, well, how could a subjective element, i.e., is pulmonary embolism the most likely diagnosis or an alternative diagnosis more likely? How could that be a, a valid variable on a decision rule? And uh, my thoughts on this is that, yeah, it's very subjective, but it validates every time. So there is some value in that kind of gestalt clinical impression. Um, it may not work at four in the morning. It may not work on with junior staff, but seasoned uh, clinicians who've seen lots of patients usually have a pretty good radar as to whether something is going on that doesn't fit the usual mold. I was going to say it would definitely be true for someone like yourself who's worked for how many years now? Well, you know, once you do more leadership and research, you kind of lose touch a little bit. But uh, yeah, I also started when I was 15. And that was, uh, and that was, so I'm looking at my uh, 27th year of clinical practice. Wow. C- congratulations. Thank you. That actually segues very nicely into talking more specifically about PERC and Wells criteria. So let's start with the PERC rule, the pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. And just to remind our listeners of the PERC rule, if you like mnemonics, you can use the had clots mnemonic, or if you're like me and you can't remember any mnemonics, you just use MD-CALC. So the PERC rule is in patients with a low gestalt for PE, it's had clots. So H for hormones, A for age over 50, D for DVT or PE history, C for coughing up blood, L for lower extremity unilateral swelling, O for O2 sat of 95%, T for tachycardia, and S for surgery or trauma in the past four weeks. In the original PERC study by Jeff Klein et al. in 2008, they concluded that, quote, the combination of gestalt estimate of low suspicion for PE and PERC negative reduces the probability of VTE to below 2% in about 20% of outpatients with suspected PE. Now, that sounds pretty good. All but one subsequent validation study showed similar results, and a meta-analysis in 2012 found a pooled sensitivity of 97% and negative likelihood ratio of 0.18, with a post-test probability of 1.9% if PERC negative. However, there are case reports of significant PEs in patients who are PERC negative, as well as one European study of PE prevalence as high as 5% in patients who were PERC negative. There was also a recent JAMA study entitled Effect of the Pulmonary Embolism Rule-Out Criteria on Subsequent Thromboembolic Events Among Low-Risk Emergency Department Patients, the Proper Randomized Clinical Trial, and that used a cohort of patients with a very low prevalence of PE. So it's all very confusing to me. Before we get into how to use PERC clinically, Dr. DeWitt, can you explain to us how the prevalence of PE in your patient population affects your pre-test and post-test probability? So put simply, the prevalence is your pre-test probability. So it's always helpful to be able to objectively estimate how likely is it that this patient has pulmonary embolism. So Put simply, 100 patients of exactly the same, if you tested 100 of them, how many of them would have pulmonary embolism? 
I think that's something that we do well in diagnostic research. And I think it's something that emergency physicians struggle with a little bit. A lot of the time I see emergency physicians confusing similar language. Um, So for example, saying things like this patient is high risk for pulmonary embolism. And what they mean by that is on my list of diagnoses, pulmonary embolism is at the top. But actually, if you do the well score, you know that their pretest probability is low. And that's quite possible for those two things to exist. But just because a diagnosis is at the top of your list doesn't mean to say they're high risk in the pretest probability sense. And that's important if you truly have a high pretest probability. So if the chances that the patient has pulmonary embolism are over 20%, they could be 30%, 40%, then there are certain tests which won't rule out. Um, significantly well. So for example, if you used a PERC rule on a patient with a pretest probability of 40%, you're only going to reduce the post-test prevalence of pulmonary embolism to quite possibly 10% or 8%, which most people would feel is too high. So we should be using PERC rule and D-dimer on patients with a lower pretest probability, so ideally less than 10% chance of having pulmonary embolism. And that's all with a view to achieving a post-test prevalence of well under 2%. So ideally, we're looking for 1% or less. If the population we're testing actually generally has a low pretest probability, and here in Canada, in Canada, across the board, about 4 or 5% of the patients we're testing in emergency departments have pulmonary embolism. So if you take all of the patients we're currently testing you could say they're probably all low risk, although clearly within that population, there will be a very small handful of patients who actually have a much higher risk for pulmonary embolism. So on the whole, it's clearly appropriate to use the PERC rule for patients who score two points or less on the Wells score. One thing we haven't really talked about yet is what's the bigger problem in North American medicine, at least, with regards to PE diagnosis? Is it missing PE or is it over-testing? And I think from a number of vantage points, the problem is clearly over-testing. We just have to look at the current yield of pulmonary embolism in CT diagnoses for the U.S. Only less than 5% come back positive. Uh, And we pat ourselves on the shoulder when we're at 15% positive PE rates. So that's a lot of people getting radiated for no good reason. And from that vantage point, I think the PERC rule is a godsend, really. It's allowed people to reduce their D-dimer ordering, which is arguably one of the drivers of over-CT use. And I'm quite satisfied uh, when I see colleagues documenting on the chart that they have not gone further in the workup of this patient because they're PERC negative. So we've got now uh, an ASEP policy statement that is supportive of the PERC rule. We've got multiple validations. It's not perfect, and hence you'll see a case report showing that PE can occur in PERC-negative patients, but that's almost confirmation that it works. If, if you've got to go down to the level of a case report to see an exception, because nothing is perfect. But I think PERC, and we'll talk about D-dimer shortly, are one of the main tools we have to protect against the onslaught of over-testing and then subsequent over-diagnosis. So it sounds like you guys are sold on PERC. 
I just want to dive a little bit deeper into the two studies. One, the European study that showed a prevalence as high as 5% in patients who were PERC negative. How do you explain that? So I worked for 14 years in the UK and I did diagnostic pulmonary embolism research there where we recruited patients consecutively. So I know that the prevalence of pulmonary embolism amongst the population that we were testing was 17%. That compares to my current emergency department where it's a little over 4%. So there's something very different happening in those two places. In Italy, they just have a higher threshold for testing for pulmonary embolism. And in the UK, I think the same is true. I believe in Italy, many of the studies have had a 25% prevalence of pulmonary embolism. So they're being more selective about who they're testing. And the pre-test probability of their population is higher. And it's quite possible that it would be inappropriate to use the PERC rule on all of those patients. Let me tell you a story, Anton. Um, many years ago, we did a randomized control trial, well-known study out of uh, Halifax led by Dave Anderson called the PEDS trial. The PEDS trial was a randomized control trial powered for three-month VTE rates, and it was a comparison of VQ versus CT for suspected pulmonary embolism. So they did a safety review halfway through the study and Incredibly, what they found was that the rate of PE was much higher in the CT arm than in the VQ arm. And it was very hard to explain this because as a randomized control trial, you would expect that the frequency of PE would be equal in both arms. After rereading the CTs, they found that many of the CTs initially read positive were actually read as indeterminate or even normal. And a Love my DI colleagues, diagnostic imaging colleagues, but you have to recognize that at least in some scenarios and in some contexts, a radiologist is going to be safer calling a PE than not calling a PE. So if they don't call a PE and the patient comes back with a PE three days later, they're on the line medical legally. If they call a PE and the patient gets anticoagulated and then has a bleed two weeks down the road, they're not on the hook at all. No one's going to go chasing that initial result. So I think we have to be very cautious about the possibilities of false positives and over-testing. And if you think about it, all of the CTPE research that we have that reports sensitivity specificities, it's somewhat of a limited evidence base because there's no gold standard. A lot of these come to diagnostic accuracy metrics by rereading CTs or showing them to the panel. That's a very circular kind of reasoning. We don't do pulmonary angiograms or autopsies on these CT-positive patients. And, and I would also add that actually CT scan doesn't diagnose pulmonary embolism. It diagnoses a filling defect. And you can have a filling defect for a huge number of reasons. It could be that the flow wasn't linear. It could just be the way the patient was lying. The flow didn't go through all the arteries evenly. Um, it could be that there's something else there, or perhaps at some stage many years ago, the patient had pulmonary embolism and there's a little bit of a scar there. So when we get to the level of the subsegmental vessels, there's really no way of knowing what the cause of the filling defect is. All right, that, that's some brilliant stuff there. So that explains why the European cohort had such a high prevalence of, of PE and why PERC didn't pick up all of them. 
What about the other extreme? You know, the studies where the prevalence is so low that it's arguable that we shouldn't even be testing these people in the first place and applying the PERC rule to them in the first place. So one of the studies that I've been involved in at the moment is a qualitative interview study. And one of the themes that comes up time and time again is that physicians are using the PERC for patients who they know they don't have pulmonary embolism. And they're just using PERC for medical legal documentation. And I'd argue that's not terribly useful. We really want to be concentrating on the patients who actually have a chance of having pulmonary embolism. I think there's great fear and scare amongst emergency physicians in Canada. Um, pulmonary embolism is, as one person put it, the boogeyman. It's uh, the big thing that nobody wants to miss. But as Eddie said, we're all going to miss pulmonary embolism sometime. And that might be because we didn't think about the diagnosis. It might be because it was the 1% false negative amongst our diagnostic algorithm. And that's okay because we can only be as good as our tests are. And there is no test that's 100%. So we should be a little bit more accepting amongst our own culture of people missing pulmonary embolism because it's going to happen, not frequently, and we don't want it to happen frequently, but it will happen. Here, here. Yeah, and if we don't accept that, uh, the fact that, that we will miss them, the alternative is what we're seeing now to some degree, which is subjecting so many young people to the risks of radiation and contrast and all of the bad things that come from making that decision to send someone for CT. I mean, CT is readily available. Uh, it's relatively fast, so it's tempting. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in our own uh, Calgary zone here, and you'll see this data, there's huge practice variation. So we created an algorithm for suspected PE based on presenting complaint, combination of chest pain and shortness of breath. And we have physicians in our group in Calgary who will order CTPE 25 to 30% of the time on patients with that diagnostic complaint versus uh, 5 to 10%. So in the balance, my understanding is that the maximum suggested prevalence for PE in order to use the PERC rule effectively is 7%. That seems to be sort of the magic number. So you don't want to be using PERC rule if the prevalence of PE like in some of these Italian studies is, you know, 17, 25%. And you don't want to be using PERC rule for everyone that has a chest. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I thought as Canadians, you know, we were moderate. You know, Dr. DeWitt, you, had, you were talking about how in Canada we work up patients for PE who have no chance of having PE. I thought you were going to say in the U.S., but it does appear that in Canada we have similar practice patterns to the U.S. now. The statistics look almost identical. You know, another interesting happen, thing happens when you speak to a group of emergency physicians. If you ask the room, who thinks that we have a problem with over-CT use, overuse of CT for suspected pulmonary embolism, almost everybody in the room raises their hand. They realize that this is an endemic problem, that we are using too much CT. But if you follow that question up with, well, individually, who out there themselves believes that they personally overuse CT, well, then far fewer hands go up, suggesting that there's a disconnect between perception and reality, that people think there's a problem, but they don't think they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Again, something that has come up in our interviews, that physicians have worked out their own way. So 
they may say, oh yeah, we know the well score, we use it. But actually they seldom use it. They, they've worked out their own individual pathway to diagnosing pulmonary embolism. And unfortunately, very often that looks like I can't use the PERC score here, so I'm going to do a CT scan. And there are many, many ways in their own minds that they justify that. It could be that they have persuaded themselves that the patient would be excluded from the well score. And actually, you can use the well score on absolutely anyone unless they're pregnant. So they, they have managed to talk themselves out of using the well score because they feel the patient would have been excluded. It might be that they feel that PE is the top of their list. And the thing I hear again and again is this patient needs that definitive test. So somehow they don't see well score and D-dimer as a definitive test, even though in 60 or 70% of the cases, they'll have a rule out test right there. It's like, because I'm concerned this patient might have PE, they must have a CT. It comes partly for this concept of patient flow, even though patient flow might be better if you don't order the CT. So for example, in Hamilton, where I'm working, you know, patients can wait for six hours for their results in a bed while there are new patients waiting in stretches to get in. There's many ways that a physician can explain to themselves that their practice is okay. And I think that's just being human being. We're so stressed in the emergency. We're trying to juggle lots of patients at the same time. We're trying to teach at the same time. You're trying to do the right thing. So they sort of somehow take the wells and they incorporate it with gestalt and then they somehow end up just using gestalt. And it's convenient to say your gestalt is high Therefore, I'm not going to use a D-dimer. Therefore, I'm going to do CT. Because then the anxiety is relieved. Diagnosing pulmonary embolism is now the radiologist's problem. It's not my problem. But then when I'm in clinic, in thrombosis clinic, and I have to tell patients that actually I don't think they've had pulmonary embolism the next day. That's a challenge. Yeah, they'll seldom believe me. And if a young female, I really have to keep the anticoagulation going for three months because they won't believe me. And then the next time they come to the emergency department, because now they're really anxious that they think they have a life-threatening condition, and they've previously been told they've had a blood clot, they're already scoring 1.5 points on the well score, or the emergency physician says this person has a thrombophilia, they need another CT. It's so interesting that you say say that, because um, I interviewed last month Paul Dorian, who's uh, an electrophysiologist uh, and an expert in atrial fibrillation. We were talking about atrial fibrillation, and... He talked at length about the problem of emergency physicians inducing anxiety in the patients about atrial fibrillation, which actually isn't a life-threatening problem in general, and that uh, they come back to the emergency room again and again and again to get cardioverted when perhaps there are better options. That's right. And patients, you know, even with the best communicator in the emergency department, patients don't remember a lot of what you tell them. And the one thing that always sticks is the fact that they have a blood clot. And they frequently equate that with a life-threatening illness. Even if you tell them that they're going to be fine and everything's okay and it's a very minor condition, they'll seldom hear that. So it's just important to bear in mind that not all pulmonary emboli cases that you diagnose are actually real cases. And it doesn't always help the thrombosis expert or the whoever it is who's following up the patient that you made the diagnosis. So what Kristen's pointing out is that thromboneurosis is a real thing. 
And it speaks also to the idea that, and goes back to the very low mortality associated with patients on treatment, a treatment failure is actually a very, uh, almost an unheard of entity. I've never, I don't think I've ever come across one. So patients coming back to the emergency department with symptoms on anticoagulation, I, th- I think our threshold to subject them to f- further imaging should be very, very high. Exactly. And it's, it's very common to develop pleuritic chest pain after the diagnosis because that's when the infarct develops. So if someone comes back with terrible pleuritic chest pain, the response is to treat their pain appropriately. It's not to do another CT scan. Wow, that's a great clinical pearl. For the EBM nerds out there, I just want to get back to the the proper trial that was in JAMA because there's quite a bit of controversy. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the proper study, it was a randomized clinical trial of almost 2,000 patients done at 14 centers in France that tested the effect of PERC rule versus usual care to exclude PE and low-risk ED patients. It showed that using PERC had similar three-month PE rate to Gestalt, but there was an 8% decrease in unnecessary CT scanning and a 40-minute decrease in ED stay compared with usual care. Now, Jeff Klein, the thrombosis researcher who came up with the Burke rule, who was recently on the SGEM podcast, they concluded that the proper paper showed that PERC works to rule out PE, yet it seems like it wasn't really much better than Gestalt. What should we take away from the proper study? Well, I think, first of all, it was done in France with clinicians who perhaps feel more comfortable at deciding when to test for pulmonary embolism. So I'm not sure that we can generalize those results to Canada. And what I found from my research is that in Canada, people are desperate for tests or rules that will tell them they don't need to test patients for pulmonary embolism. There seems to be a great need for a, in quotes, definitive test to rule out at the bedside before you've even started. So I don't doubt that PARC rule helps in North America and in Canada. And I know that people use it. And actually, I think what people find more frustrating is the fact that it's only a small proportion of patients you test for PE who are PERC negative. So it's almost like in Canada, they're asking for more PERC equivalents, but for patients who are older than 50 and for patients who are on OCP or HRT. Yeah, I agree completely. I think it highlights the point that a French European Gestalt is different than the rest of the world. And that's because the way the history of PE diagnosis has evolved there, although they're approaching North American rates of PE rule-in rates, but uh, in, in some of the initial studies, they had positive CT rates of 20 to 25%. So that's incredible. One out of four who you send for CT has PE. That's way higher than anything in North America. All right. So give me your bottom line on how we should use the PERC rule then. I think a nice standardized approach would be decide whether you need to test for pulmonary embolism or not. And you're either all in or you're all out. So there's no such thing of just dabbling around the edges. Either you need to test for PE or not. And you should feel comfortable that the patient might have a CT scan because you've decided you need to test for PE. So you should start by doing the well score And if the well score is less than two, use the PERC rule. And if the PERC rule is positive, you do a D-dimer. Or if the well score is between two and four, you do a D-dimer. 
Yeah, I like that. Uh, unfortunately, not all patients walk into the door with a clear sense of exact symptom profile and there could be language barriers. So I'm a little bit more liberal in applying the PERC rule. So if I have a, a chest pain that I just can't figure out or someone with dyspnea that could be of multiple etiologies, I'll widen my net a bit. And even though um, nothing actually screams PE, I'll use the PERC as a screening tool to say, okay, well, at least I don't have to worry about a pulmonary embolism in this patient, but otherwise agree with Kirsten. You had mentioned a well score of two or less. And if it's a well score of two or less, then apply PERC. If PERC is negative, you're done. And that's what I've been doing. However, I did come across a great question on Twitter, actually, that was related to the well score and which cutoffs we should be using with full credit to Lauren Westifer of uh, Foamcast. And her question was, if you're using wells to risk stratify a patient with possible PE, do you use the three-tiered well score, which is zero to one or two to six or seven or more, or the dichotomized well score, which is four or less versus more than four? We just agonized over this recently. We uh, ran a full year cluster randomized control trial and half of the 200 physicians in Calgary were randomized to receive decision support for CTPE ordering. Uh, their control group was physicians who received decision support for minor head injury. And as we were building our decision support tool, we agonized over whether to use a three-level wells or a two-level wells. Uh, i got to give credit to James Andruco, um, the PI on the project. But after much, much discussion, research review, it was clear to everybody that the two-level wells does just as well as the three-level wells. Yeah, 100%. We moved away from the three-level wells, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, I feel. It, there is good validation for using a cutoff of four. And if you're using a cutoff of two, you just shouldn't be doing that. And I'll tell you why. is because it's very easy to manipulate the three-level wells score. So all you need to say is you know what, I think this patient has pulmonary embolism. I think that's more likely than any other diagnosis. And there you go, bingo, you don't need to do a D-dimer. I think we need to push ourselves more than that. If we're going to use a score, we need a cutoff that you need something in addition to those three points. So the two-level well score actually allows you to use D-dimer more patients, and it will allow you to rule out pulmonary embolism in a greater proportion of the patients you test. Okay, so I just want to clarify, we just finished saying that a wells of two or less plus a negative perk rules out pulmonary embolism. But now we're talking about using the two-tier well score of four. So how do you incorporate that then? So actually, it was Jeff Klein who landed on this cutoff of two for using the perk rule. I feel that he wanted to be conservative because he wanted to be sure that he wasn't going to falsely reassure physicians when a patient actually had pulmonary embolism. The cutoff of four applies to whether you use D-dimer or not. Okay, so two separate things, really. We're talking about if we're thinking we're not even going to do a D-dimer at all, we use a Wells 2 and a negative perk. But if we're thinking, does this patient need a D-dimer, then we're using a well score of four. Absolutely. So if they are positive on the paracrule, or if they score between two and four points, then you can use D-dimer. Um, I agree. But you also have to remember that 
there's never been a study to show that Wells outperforms Gestalt for clinical pretest probability. Oh boy, that throws another wrench in. <laughs> so let's just get this clear. So you can use Gestalt or Wells to decide your pretest probability, I believe. Okay. I mean, I guess practically speaking, it depends on your clinical experience. You know, if you're Eddie Lang, then yeah, you can probably depend on your Gestalt. If you've just graduated and you're just starting practice, then maybe you should be less anchoring on your Gestalt. And we all have off days. So there's nothing wrong at all with taking a more structured approach. Mm -hmm. I would definitely say that if you want to use your own Gestalt, you have to remember what the Gestalt is for. You have to remember that you're estimating pretest probability. So the vast majority of patients we test for pulmonary embolism have no diagnosis when they walk out the door. The vast majority, possibly 60 or 70% of them. So I think it's important that you remember that you're actually trying to estimate the real probability that the patient has pulmonary embolism. And you don't get this mix up between the patient has risk for PE, therefore they're high risk for PE. Those are two different things. And I would actually say it's particularly the experienced physicians who never look at the well score. I would urge you to pull your, your handheld smartphone out and bring up MD Calc and just calculate the well score. It will tell you what the pretest probability is. And there'll be a number of times where you're going down the high risk route you calculate it and it grounds you again. You think, oh, the pretest probability here is actually only 10%. It's only 15% or it's only 5%. Recognizing that we do overestimate the pretest probability with our gestalt. Sometimes, yeah. Anton, are you looking for another wrench? <laughs> not, not, not quite yet. I want to try and put it all together. The perk rule, the wells, and gestalt. So... It's controversial, let's say, that Gestalt is good enough for assessing your pretest probability. You can use a well score of two or less plus perk negative to rule out. In order to decide whether to do a D-dimer or not, the cutoff is a wells of four or if you're perk positive. Now, knowing that sometimes we overestimate the pretest probability with Gestalt, and knowing that some studies suggest that our Gestalt is as good as Wells, taking that into account, you need to decide whether your experience as a physician and you think your Gestalt is good enough, you have to decide whether you're going to pull out your smartphone and use Wells score MD Calc, or whether you're confident that your Gestalt is good enough, as good as Wells, to help your decision making. Diagnosing pulmonary embolism is complicated to do it properly. It's easy just to order the CT scan, but to do it properly is complicated and it takes work and it takes time and it takes brain stress. And in order to expect emergency physicians to do that and to do it accurately with confidence, then they need proper support. So your emergency department should have, first of all, a determined algorithm so then you feel that you have the backing of your emergency department if you choose to use a particular test. And secondly, we should be facilitating emergency physicians to do this. We can't just say the research is there, therefore they just have to use it. We've got to embed it within the, the setting of the emergency department. 
Okay, we're going to get on to uh, decision support and how your department can work as a group to figure out the best algorithm for working up PEs. But I want to talk a little bit more about D-dimer because we haven't yet gotten to age-adjusted D-dimer or using D-dimer in pregnancy. So let's first talk about older people who present with something that could be a pulmonary embolism. First off, again, I just got to say that we still seem to be obsessing over diagnosing clinically irrelevant PEs in young and healthy patients while at the same time giving less attention to the sick older patients who are at much higher risk for clinically relevant PEs because of their age and, and comorbidities. Now, we covered age-adjusted D-dimer on our very first Journal Jam podcast in 2014 with Jeff Klein and concluded at that time that it's probably worth using in clinical practice. So with age-adjusted D-dimer, just to remind you, for patients 50 years of age or older, you multiply the patient's age by 10 and use that as the cutoff value. So Dr. DeWitt, what's your take on the utility of age-adjusted D-dimer? In other words, in adult patients with low to intermediate pretest probability for acute PE, does a negative age-adjusted D-dimer rule out PE at least to less than 1% or 2% post-test probability so that you don't need to work them up further? Absolutely. I would encourage people to use it. It slightly increases the proportion of patients that you can rule out pulmonary embolism without imaging. Every single test we have for pulmonary embolism has a false negative rate. So those are inherent qualities of the test. And I think as everyone always does, you say when you've ruled out pulmonary embolism, you say to the patient, if you get worse, you come back. I agree. This uh, is a pretty interesting advance in the use of D-dimer. It's ready for prime time. Given the natural progression of D-dimer values over age, it makes a lot of sense too. Okay, so we all agree that age-adjusted D-dimer is valuable to use. What about the YEARS study? So we've been talking about Wells and PERC. The Lancet published this paper in 2017. It was called Simplified Diagnostic Management of Suspected PE, the YEARS Study, a prospective multicenter cohort study. And it claimed that, quote, PE was safely excluded by the YEARS diagnostic algorithm in patients with suspected PE. Years is sort of a simplified well score. So they also said that the main advantage of the years algorithm in their patients is the absolute 14% decrease of CTPA use in all ages and across several relevant subgroups. So that, that sounds pretty good. Then in Academic EM in 2018, they published a paper entitled multi-center evaluation of the year's criteria in ED patients evaluated for PE, and they concluded that, quote, D-dimer adjustment based on pretest probability may result in a reduced need for imaging to evaluate possible PE with some additional missed PE, but no decrease in negative predictive value. Now, the year's criteria has two different D-dimer thresholds. So first, can you just explain how these two different thresholds work? And then we'll get on to whether we should use years across the board in patients suspected of PE. The years study worked on the premise that if you are unlikely to have pulmonary embolism, then we can use a higher threshold to determine 
positive or negative D-dimer. And if you have a higher risk of having pulmonary embolism, our threshold for cutting off between positive and negative D-dimer should be lower. I have to say what I like about the year's study is it was simpler. So there's only three items to remember. So I think as far as implementation goes, I think it fits better in the emergency model. You're probably less likely to have to pull out your smartphone to reference the score. Probably as emergency physicians, we could remember those three items. So, so the, the three items, just to remind people, are... So whether you think pulmonary embolism is the most likely diagnosis, whether the patient has signs and symptoms of deep vein thrombosis, and it is important to realize that's the Wells definition, which means they have to have a minimum of leg swelling and tenderness, and uh, whether the patient has hemoptysis. So in reality, the vast majority of patients who would score on that, the year's score would actually score because the emergency physician thought pulmonary embolism was most likely, since we so seldom see patients with swollen legs or with hemoptysis. So you use those three clinical criteria. If there's clinical signs of DVT, hemoptysis, and if PE is the most likely diagnosis, if there's zero years items, then a D-dimer of less than 1,000 rules out PE. If there's zero years items and the D-dimer is greater than 1,000, then you go ahead and order a CT. If there's one or more of the year's items and the D-dimer is less than 500, that rules out a PE, which, wow, that's impressive to think that if there's one or more of these items. So if you think that PE is the most likely diagnosis and they have hemoptysis and they have clinical signs of DVT and the D-dimer is less than 500, you've ruled out PE. That's the one that actually surprises me. And then lastly, if you have one or more years items and the D-dimer is positive, then obviously you go on to do a CT. So I'm going to differ with Kirsten a little bit here. It is tempting because of its simplicity to implement. And it does make sense logically that you would use a pretest probability adjusted threshold for what you would consider as a positive for D-dimer. Uh, there's some precedent for that. We There's a select DVT trial that showed that that would work in DVT assessment. But uh, everything we've talked about so far, be it the PERC, the Wells, age-adjusted D-dimer, have all been subject to the rigor of a systematic review of the literature. And that will take into account study limitations, potential pooling of data, and give you more of a sense of whether we're really ready for prime time. To my knowledge, years has not yet undergone a systematic review type of analysis. And until that time, it's interesting but I, I wouldn't consider it ready for practice. There were some other problems that were brought up with the year's study that physicians weren't actually blinded to the initial D-dimer, for example. And also they quoted higher rates of PE than the rest of the literature. Things um, that would come out if a systematic review was done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think fair to say then that years looks very promising. However, we just need a little bit more evidence for it to become prime time. For now, we should be probably still using wells. If you do use years, I think you have the evidence to, to support you there. But maybe we should be waiting a little bit longer for some more evidence. Yeah, ultimately, each emergency department should decide internally which tests they're going to use and what, what is their pulmonary embolism testing algorithm. So none of us should be stood at the bedside 
deciding which test to dip into, we should know which test automatically we are to use and we just follow the guidelines. Yeah, that takes off a, a lot of the burden on the individual physician for sure. I want to get on to other things that we look at when we're thinking about PE, like chest X-ray and ECG and all and all of those sorts of tests. Let's start with chest X-ray. So I remember in medical school learning that there were five signs on chest X-ray for pulmonary embolism, you know, raised hemidiaphragm and pleural effusion and normal and, and all these things. And it got drilled into my head. What is the role of chest X-ray in your, in your workup of pulmonary embolism? I mean, you know, if you see an obvious pneumonia, does that rule out a PE? We had talked about how COPD patients can have a concomitant PE, and that's kind of a difficult decision to make. What is the role of chest X-ray in the workup of PE? So I do primarily do chest X-ray to diagnose other conditions, particularly if someone's got pleuritic chest pain to exclude pneumothorax. I have occasionally ruled out pulmonary embolism on the basis of pneumonia, but it had to be a very clear pneumonia. So, for example, a lobar pneumonia, or sometimes where you have what they used to call bronchopneumonia, so bilateral patchy changes, which are very, very clearly infective in origin. I think an area of consolidation on the X-ray does not rule out pulmonary embolism. Okay, so that's one of the pitfalls, I suppose, is an area of consolidation doesn't necessarily mean there's not a PE. Dr. Lang? I think uh, getting a chest x-ray is is paramount and not doing one before advanced imaging would be really below the standard of care. And uh, I think it's largely about the alternative diagnosis. That situation that Kristen described where you're thinking PE, you're convinced it's PE, and then it comes back as a pretty clear pneumonia is not uncommon. So you really need to make sure the lung fields are clear or look for findings related to PE, but it's an essential part of the workup. And what about ECG? First, could you just review for our listeners, remind them what the findings on ECG that are consistent with a PE are? The most common ECG would be either sinus tachycardia or normal. So I actually don't use ECG to tell me the likelihood of pulmonary embolism with one exception and that would be in the patient who presents with syncope or near syncope and there's right bundle branch which is new. All right, S1, Q3, T3, incomplete right bundle, RV strain pattern on the ECG, dominant R wave in V1, SD elevation in V1 and AVR, any of these things useful? 30 years ago when we were grasping at straws, yes, those were really useful, but they're not all that relevant today. They don't have diagnostic discrimination abilities. The one in particular that I find useful is when there's flip T's in both the anterior and inferior leads. My understanding that that actually has a very high positive predictive value for pulmonary embolism, that it almost rules it in. Is that true? So if I had a patient who didn't have symptoms of pulmonary embolism and that was their ECG, I would not be testing them for pulmonary embolism. I would likely be testing them for an acute coronary syndrome or something else. I, that wouldn't change the direction of my testing. If I was testing someone for pulmonary embolism and they had that on their ECG, I might think, oh, I'm glad now that I'm testing them for pulmonary embolism, but it still isn't going to change my course of action. Yeah, I, I find myself when when I do see 
that pattern on the ECG, I get all excited and show my residence. And it's usually in the situation where I've already ordered the CT because I'm pretty sure the patient has a pulmonary embolism just clinically. And then I see this ECG and I say, I bet you that CT is going to be positive. Actually, because that ECG finding is actually quite specific for PE, then it does turn out to be positive. So I suppose that particular finding can help confirm your suspicion and can help confirm the diagnosis. It certainly shouldn't rule it out if it's not there. Yeah, and I think as Eddie alluded to, for example, your gestalt or the, or the three points in the Wells score, which is the gestalt question about whether P is the most likely, that is often influenced by the results of the chest X-ray or possibly the ECG. Um, so the classical example is just what you said, somebody who's struggling to breathe who has completely normal X-ray. That would make me more suspicious of pulmonary embolism. Absolutely. The other pitfall I find with ECG is you see an ECG with flip T's in the anterior leads, which is consistent with a pulmonary embolism, but, but that can be misinterpreted as ACS. And you go down the ACS road and completely miss the PE. Sure, that's certainly an issue. Uh, but then again, it could also be an ACS. So, um, and in, in nine times out of 10, if not 99 times out of 100, flip teasing the anterior lead are ischemic, cardiac ischemia. Mm-hmm. A number of the patients who make it to our clinic actually were diagnosed with pulmonary embolism after their coronary angiogram. So most cardiologists now incorporate that into their normal diagnostic testing. If a patient has a coronary angiography and they don't appear to have significant disease to the extent that they expect, uh, because a lot of people certainly in Hamilton have coronary artery disease, but if there's nothing there that would make them think was a culprit lesion, then um, they do often order a CT pulmonary angiogram afterwards. So I don't know if we're done with D-dimer as a topic, but one thing that I don't think there's been great evidence on this, and it's largely anecdotal. But if you've got some EKG abnormalities, a marginal high-sensitivity troponin, and an unclear story, whether it's ischemic or something else, high levels of D-dimer, like when, you know, like will we'll correlate with clot burden. So we're not talking about, you know, 10% or 15% above the upper limit of normal for your D-dimer assay, but like when it's seven, eight, nine times normal, then, whoa, maybe this is PE. You know, like when the lab comes back, D-dimer so high, we can't give you a number. Mm. Stop and think. But then again, stop and think about dissection too. When it comes to very, very high D-dimers, my understanding is that a lot of those patients, and there's some there's a study that supports this notion, that a lot of those patients actually have undiagnosed cancer. But if they're in the emergency department with chest pain and shortness of breath, they also have PE. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But let's say, I'm just thinking, you know, if, you've, if you do get a very high D-dimer and you've ruled out PE on your CT scan, then perhaps some of those, you know, you should be thinking about cancer in those patients and uh, maybe at least have refer them for follow-up for yeah. a work Or an inflammatory condition. Mm-hmm. So what I would say there is I would ask them to go to their family doctor to have their age-appropriate cancer screening tests to be sure they're up to date. So we've talked about chest x-ray, we've talked about ECG, we've talked about D-dimer. What about point-of-care ultrasound? 
Now, POCUS can show signs of right heart strain. And if you're a POCUS guru, maybe even you could differentiate between PE and other chronic conditions that cause right heart strain, like pulmonary hypertension, Um, at least according to Rob Samard on our POCUS series, episode number one video, he very eloquently describes some of the specific signs for pulmonary embolism on POCUS. What's your take on the role of POCUS in the work of, of PE? So in my own practice, um, the time that I found it invaluable is the patient who arrives in the research room and you know you have 10 or 15 minutes before they're going to die. So that's when you put the probe on the chest and you look at the RV. Um, that's when you have to make a really tough call because the patient isn't going to make it to the CT scanner. PE is not always obvious. So it adds to your list of things that are going through your brain about the risk benefit of thrombolysis. So the patients who are hypotensive, you know that you stand at the end of the bed and you look at the patient and you know they're not going to be alive in 15 minutes. I find it exceptionally helpful to support me in using thrombolysis in that scenario. And then clearly, if you're working someone up for PE and if you're lucky enough to find a DVT, if they've got a big swollen leg, just stick the probe on, you've got a DVT, you know the diagnosis, so you feel comfortable, let's get them on the treatment. We can do whatever official diagnostic tests we need, but we have time. All right. Yeah. I mean, certainly in, in cardiac arrest, I've received emails actually from EM cases listeners, participants of the EM cases course, when we talked about intra-arrest use of POCUS, you know, when you have a very obvious dilated RV patient who's suddenly collapsed at home. We've had, at least anecdotally, you know, patients given TNK and with very good uh, survival after uh, cardiac arrest. Is there any role for POCUS in deciding whether a patient can go home or not? Perhaps there's a patient who fulfills the criteria for outpatient treatment, but you use POCUS and you find some evidence of right heart strain, maybe you won't send them home. So uh, there's good evidence to suggest patients with right heart strain can still be treated at home. So no, I wouldn't use that. I would use the much more common sense approach of are they tachycardic? Do they need oxygen? Do they need IV analgesia for their pain? Is there somebody at home with them? Um, Are they so frail and elderly that this is enough that they're going to fall if they go home? I would use those criteria instead. I might also, though, pull out the PESI score or the simplified PESI which has been well-validated as a, as a predictor of mortality in PE. All right. We're not going to get into the details of, of treatment and which patients out require in-hospital treatment for PE. But suffice to say that POCUS probably does have a role in deciding whether to thrombolize a patient or not, but probably not much of a role in the diagnostic workup. I'm sure I'm going to get emails from uh, POCUS keeners out there that disagree. I welcome those emails. Let's go back now to our case of our 38-year-old, otherwise healthy lawyer with crescendo onset, persistent, non-radiating, 6 out of 10 chest pain that started while she was driving to work a few hours ago. Remember, normal vitals, she's got an incomplete right bundle branch block on ECG. So putting everything together that we've talked about, Gestalt and PERC and D-dimers and wells and years and ECGs and imaging, how would you work up this patient? I wouldn't test her for pulmonary embolism. Actually, in this woman, there's not enough in what you've told me that would make me suspicious she has pulmonary embolism. 
I don't believe I heard anything about breathlessness in your story. If she told me that she is struggling when she's walking up the stairs to breathe, then yes, I might put PE on there and I might start working her up. But as it stands, this sounds like a lady who has an atypical kind of chest pain. It doesn't sound particularly pleuritic. It doesn't sound particularly cardiac. I wouldn't test her for pulmonary embolism. So I'm going to invoke uh, the fact that I don't have a clear explanation for her chest pain. And she did say she felt a little short of breath. So, I mean, it's always hard in these text cases without looking at the patient. Uh, you know, Jeff Klein's now done some work looking at uh, facial expressions and, and, and apprehensiveness as a, as a marker of whether there's something more serious going on. But I, I would at least uh, apply the perk rule to her and uh, if necessary, D-dimer. All right, it's time to review part one of this deep dive into the workup of PE. First, while PE can certainly kill, most of us have seen that, the vast majority of PEs are relatively benign with a mortality rate of diagnosed PE well under 1%, probably closer to less than 0.1%. And while we might think we see a lot of patients that are high risk for PE, the vast majority of patients who are considering for PE diagnosis are, in fact, low risk according to Wells' criteria. When do we miss PEs? Well, miss PEs are almost always a failure to consider the diagnosis in the first place rather than an erroneous workup. We do a ton of needless CTs in low or no risk patients with their inherent problems of overdiagnosis and radiation risk for fear of missing a PE. So what's a more rational approach to working up PE instead of ordering D-dimers and or CTs on everyone with a set of lungs? Well, first, you need to take a really good detailed history. You need to understand pretest probability. You need to know the prevalence of PE in your population. And you need to understand the utility of Wells, Perk, Gestalt, chest x-ray, and ECG. Armed with understanding these key elements, you'll do better for your patients. So let's flush out these key elements. The history. You need to take your time to take a careful history and assess for PE risk factors. Where we need to drill down when it comes to assessing symptoms is whether the patient is experiencing exertional dyspnea or not, breathlessness, and what kind of breathlessness. So Dr. DeWitt gave some examples of how she asked the questions. For example, how's your breathing? Or give me an example of when you feel breathless. These are kind of open-ended questions that can really get to whether the patient is actually experiencing exertional dyspnea or not. The second most common symptom in PE is fatigue, which, yes, is nonspecific, but if a patient that otherwise seems fine but is breathless and they say they just feel awful with fatigue, think about the possibility of PE. Remember that only 5% of patients with PE present with chest pain. So while chest pain is important to assess and should certainly be on your differential for patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain, it's not the leading chief complaint for PE. After taking a decent history, you need to think about risk factors and more importantly, understand the value of risk factor assessment. While many PEs are diagnosed in patients with zero apparent risk factors, remember that half of diagnosed PEs are unprovoked, While on the other hand, there's a huge long list of PE risk factors, the key ones we should be assessing for are first, previous thromboembolic events, next, recent immobilization, active cancer, estrogen use, 
and finally, strong family history. These are the ones that should shift our pretest probability one way or the other. What about syncope as a risk factor? The Canadian data shows a much smaller percentage of patients admitted for syncope who have PE than the PESIT trial, less than 1%. So a reasonable approach is to assess your syncope patients for PE the way you would any other patient in the ED. And for the patients diagnosed with a COPD exacerbation in the ED, you should probably only be working them up for PE if something just isn't fitting. You certainly shouldn't be working up every syncope and COPD exacerbation for PE in the ED. One source of overtesting is misinterpreting the contribution of heart rate to the pretest probability. So what do I mean by that? So first, tachycardia alone should not trigger the workup of PE, and also a normal heart rate should never rule out a PE. Tachycardia is one of the elements of Wells, remember? And one important nuance is that a triage tachycardia that normalizes by the time you see them, according to a study by Jeff Klein at least, should be considered tachycardia when using the Wells score. Now, what's the best use of decision tools for PE? Well, this is our approach. If a patient with a possibility of a PE diagnosis presents to your ED, start with Wells. If it's less than two, apply PERC. If PERC is negative, you're done. If Wells is two, three, or four, then consider doing a D-dimer. Over four, get a CT. Or you can use Gestalt to replace Wells, but that's still pretty controversial. There is an argument to be made that even seasoned docs should take the time to calculate Wells because even they have a tendency to overestimate pretest probability at times. If your ED doesn't have easy-to-use decision support with a predetermined algorithm, consider speaking to your admin folks to make it happen. Now, what about age-adjusted D-dimer? Well, according to our experts, it is ready for prime time. Use it, but use it wisely. Now, if you're not a fan of Wells because it's too lengthy, consider using the years criteria, which only has three items. One, whether you think PE is the most likely diagnosis. Two, whether the patient has signs and symptoms of DVT, which is a minimum of leg swelling and tenderness, and three, hemoptysis. And don't forget that there are two D-dimer thresholds with years, depending on whether there is zero or one or more features present. And the two cutoffs are 500 and 1,000. So that being said, years hasn't been rigorously validated and reviewed yet, and there were some significant problems with the study. So you could argue that it's not quite ready for prime time. Imaging. When it comes to imaging, the chest x-ray for PE is not quite dead yet. It still has value in ruling in other diagnoses and shifting your probability of PE. So if the chest x-ray is crystal clear in your breathless patient, the probability of PE should probably be a bit higher in your assessment for PE risk. And conversely, if there's an obvious pneumothorax, that would decrease the probability of PE. But be careful. One pitfall we've seen over and over is seeing what looks like a pneumonia on chest x-ray and attributing a pneumonia to the shorter breath patient who has pleuritic chest pain and cough with hemoptysis without really thinking about the possibility of PE. Remember that PE with a lung infarct can look like an infiltrate on chest x-ray. Now, what about ECG? Now, the ECG might also help shift your probability of PE a bit, but doesn't have good diagnostic discrimination in itself. 
So if a patient who presents with syncope has a new right bundle branch block on the ECG, you might consider PE. And if there's flip T's in both the anterior and inferior leads, that's almost impossible to happen from cardiac ischemia, that's actually surprisingly specific for PE in the breathless patient. The other ECG findings we learn about, like S1Q3T3, should be interpreted in context of the patient's presentation and are far from sensitive or specific for PE. Just like you shouldn't let tachycardia in isolation push you to work up a patient for PE, you shouldn't let an ECG in isolation push you to work up a patient for PE. The clinical context is key. Next, POCUS. POCUS can be useful in the undifferentiated shock patient or cardiac arrest patient to help you decide whether or not to thrombolize for PE. If you haven't heard it yet, listen to the latest best case ever, number 74, Coding in the Scanner, where we talk about thrombolysis for PE intra-arrest with Peter Reardon. POCUS can also be useful to rule in DVT in a shorter breath patient who you're thinking about PE in when you can't get quick access to CT, for example. So the arrest or shock patient might benefit from POCUS, and you might just find a DVT in a shorter breath patient, which would help you at 4 a.m. when you can't get access to a CTPA. But our experts argue that for disposition, POCUS is really not very helpful. Use the disposition decision rules instead. You might be surprised how many patients are actually eligible to be discharged home with PE. Well, that's it for part one of PE workup and diagnosis please go directly to part two of this podcast released two weeks after this one on August 28th, where Dr. Lang, DeWitt, and I discuss the nuances of CTPA, the promise of VQ-SPECT, how to work up pregnant patients for PE, how to implement decision support for PE in your ED, and a whole lot more. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 